Hello, it's Tom Ballard, host of What's the Story, the podcast where we talk about Audible's Editor's Extra, a bonus monthly audiobook that we reckon is pretty cool and worth listening to. If you've listened to the show before, you'll know that I've been bringing you some interviews with the authors behind the titles we're talking about. This month is no different, but it's a little bit special. You're about to hear my extended conversation with Sarah Krasnerstein, the author of this month's Editor's Extra, The Trauma Cleaner. There is just so much to talk about when it comes to the life of Sandra Pankhurst and what her story means. And Sarah is such a fascinating writer and thinker. You told us that you wanted to hear more from Sarah Krasnerstein, so we're going to give it to you, you lucky ducks. So here it is. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed making it. Sarah Krasnerstein, welcome to What's the Story? Thank you for having me. No worries. Thanks for being here. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Have you had a chance to listen to the audiobook version uh, of the novel? I think that Rachel's done a fantastic job, much better than I, especially given that I can't <laughs> do an Aussie accent. She, she's fantastic. Like, she does a beautiful reading. She brings the characters to life through characterization in a lovely way. But you have a lovely voice, too. Well, that's very kind. I'm not great at speaking out loud. You were tempted to read the story? No, no. I prefer to um, work on the page and leave others <laughs> to, to speak out loud most of the time. So it's been two years since the book was actually released 2018 was sort of the big year when it became a real hit and there were lovely awards and it was a great success, really connected with a lot of people, obviously. Two years on, what is your emotional connection to the trauma cleaner? How do you, how do you feel about it as a piece of work in, in your career? I'm, I'm still very proud of it and I'm still kind of floored by the response of readers whenever they reach out to share the impact that it's had on them. I always feel very grateful that I get the chance to do that in my work. Mm. And, you know, a book is not a living thing in the sense that you work on it, you do the best you can in the time that you have, and then, you know, you literally close it and move on. But that story will always have, you know, a very holy place in my heart. You touch on it in the author's note, and I know you've discussed this a lot, but talk us through that first moment when you first saw Sandra Pankhurst. So uh, when I'm not writing, I work as a legal academic, and I was at a very boring bureaucratic <laughs> conference for... Are there any sexy, exciting ones? No, or? I know, exactly. <laughs> um, well, maybe, maybe it is slightly interesting. It was of a friend's, like court support services right. for disabled offenders. Mm -hmm. And the people that attend these things, uh, besides academics, are public servants and also people from corrections and the police. And those stakeholders uh, from time to time contract with Sandra for her services, for her cleaning business. So being the businesswoman that she is, she took that chance and she was in the lobby uh, at a card table touting her business. And it was a break between sessions and I came out and it was just this image of the striking woman and this business that, you know, I had somehow managed to reach my mid-30s without never giving one moment's thought to. What is trauma cleaning? Mm -hmm. And I had to know more. I didn't kind of consciously put on my writing hat. It was just this overwhelming sense of my own curiosity to find out who she was and, and what she did. And then this process begins, this four-year process, really, yes. of spending a lot of time with Sandra, finding out her personal story and also observing her work. Yes. How do you go about establishing trust and convincing her or asking her or persuading yeah. her or seeking permission for you to go pretty deeply into her personal story and observe her work? Yes. So I'm not an investigative journo. I am not the kind of person who's going to write about anyone who doesn't want to be written about. So, you know, in Sandra and my subsequent work, 
it's always been a question of working with people who, who want to share their stories in this way. With Sandra, the challenge wasn't so much getting access, but it was kind of working through uh, you know, all of the material she was sharing with me, problems with her memory that she had explained you know, was something that she struggled with, and how to kind of do justice to the story. So it happened very quickly. We had our first meeting between her medical appointments for her lungs mm. at the Alfred, and it was in this hospital cafe, and it was really a deluge of information very quickly, and I felt very lucky that she was sharing all that with me very quickly, but also very curious as to as to why that level of candor so quickly. Right. And I think it wasn't anything, you know, magic in me. I think I was lucky enough to find her at this moment in her life when she was bursting with her story and the need to kind of be heard and seen. And perhaps as a generational thing, the language that I had for certain questions or my responses to things that she had intuitively decided to share at that moment were different from what she had received at earlier stages of her life. So, you know, when she shared with me that she had been assigned male at birth or that she had done sex work, I was not phased by any of those things. Of course, I was interested in her as a person, but I found there would be no reason to have any judgment on, you know, my behalf. And so I think that was a big thing in terms of gaining trust. Mm. Was I somebody that could listen to the whole story in its context? And so that happened very early on, which I'm incredibly grateful for. Yeah. So it was quite immediate, the decision or the realization that this person who does this extraordinary work is an extraordinary person as well. Because there, there's an entire book in trauma cleaning, right, in Absolutely. just looking at the work and how that works and the kind of people that Sandra deals with being a trauma cleaner. But then um, you get the bonus, well, <laughs> yes, of this extraordinary story of the person who's doing that too. That's exactly right. So I initially thought, oh, I'll do a profile day in the life of a trauma cleaner. Right. And, you know, about seven minutes into that first <laughs> sit-down, I realized that her work was actually the least interesting thing about her. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the nature of the story, this awful childhood that she survived, this adventurous, um, often extremely sad life, even at that first meeting, you could, without any personal experience of watching her at work, because I didn't yet know that that was going to be a possibility, you could stand back and see how it worked very beautifully at a metaphorical level of somebody who had had their own pain and was kind of using it or mobilizing all of those emotions to help others. So that was hinted at very strongly early on. Um, and indeed, early in the novel, you talk about the process of writing this this book, this nonfiction piece, yes. is a form of trauma cleaning in yes. itself. You are cleaning the trauma in a way, bringing a sense of order, as yes. Sandra does to certain houses, to her own life. Exactly. I mean, that's what, you know, as writers, we're privileged to be able to kind of take all the messiness of the world as it is and, you know, deluge of undifferentiated information that we're subjected to on a daily basis and that's life, and turn it into the story of life and make meaning out of pain and kind of control the narrative so that it has a meaningful ending. It's not you can be the hero of the story. You don't have to be the victim of the story. And it's a very positive profession in that sense. And you do that so beautifully. The end of the novel, this beautiful description of a clean house, oh. <laughs> <laughs> of a house that has been cleaned, you know, that has tokens of 
pain or, or items in that house that speak to a, a life of certain pain or moments of trauma, yes. but organised and placed in a sense of order yes. into Sandra's life today. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Do you think if someone came up to you and said, hey, Sarah Kresnerstein, can I study your life and document your story and write a book about it, would you be up for it? I don't think so. First, I'm not that interesting. I think <laughs> I spent years wondering where to put a comma. So, you know, who wants to see that happen? Bored. <laughs> so that's the exciting part. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, whenever, you know, I, I discuss projects with my friends who are writers or I teach writing workshops, there's always this fear that, you know, it's luck that is key in finding stories. But we have to remember that there's more stories than there are people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while certain lives are definitely more interesting than others, everybody, you know, in their interior lives has something unique and worthy of note, and I think we can all kind of learn from them. I think the lesson with this story, which, you know, when you're writing it, you never know how it's going to be perceived. You don't know if it's a thing. You don't know if people are going to, if it's going to resonate with people. But, you know, what I have found is that the more singular a story appears, the more universal the message actually is. Um, and it's a good vehicle for getting people's attention. And then they find out, hey, I'm not so different to what's being described here or there, but for the grace of whatever you want to call it, I would go as well. So it's interesting in that respect. We follow you and Sandra as you visit multiple houses uh, that are in need of her services, of the trauma cleaning. And we meet some of those people who are in pretty desperate need of, of connection and a bit of care. Which personal home that you visited with Sandra really sticks with you and stays in your head and your soul? They're all in the book because they were absolutely earth-shattering for me. But the first job was emotionally and viscerally huge for me because that leap from not having any experience in these environments to suddenly stepping into what seems like another world and finding it's actually just, you know, the flat next door or the street, you know, over, that was huge in terms of shattering any perceptions I had about what our society is like. Yeah. And this isn't the first home we come to in the story, in the book, but rather the first chronologically that you oh, visited. Sorry, yes, yes That's which correct. is Girl Interrupted, so was, right? Yes, exactly. The, the um, woman who was my age at the time, 35, who had recently died of a heroin overdose. And other on-site jobs with Sandra would be equally disturbing and equally sad, but I think it was just this realization of how alone certain people in our society can be. As I stepped into this apartment where this death had gone undiscovered for two and a half weeks, and so that kind of change from zero to 100 was something that just had a humongous emotional impact on me. There are TV shows about hoarders. It seems like we have some kind of morbid curiosity or deep interest in hoarding in people who seem to be somewhat defeated by life or lose control of basic hygiene or mm. maintaining a home or a house. What do you think is behind that? What, what feeds into that curiosity? Why are we fascinated by that? Well, yeah, I'm guilty of watching those shows as well. And I think that interest can be on a range of levels. You know, at one end is kind of the sanctimonious way of looking at it from a place of high altitude. Oh, I'm doing better than them. Oh, that's freakish. That's awful. And at the other end is that could be me if I hadn't had the support or if that had happened to me and I, or that's somebody I know. 
And I think, you know, on that spectrum of responses with, to anybody going through human difficulty, we all have a responsibility to kind of see how we're more similar to people in distress than we are different. There was nothing very complicated about any of these scenarios, apart from the fact that these were people in human pain who didn't have social support that many of the rest of us are lucky enough to have when things get too hard. I think we all know what it's like to not want to get out of bed. Mm. I think we all know what it's like to be too defeated either physically or mentally to clean the house or change the sheets or take the rubbish out. But most of us, you know, kind of get out of those ruts with the supports that we have and get on with our lives. But for those that aren't lucky enough to have those things in place, it is very easy to go down that slope. And when we commodify that and stigmatize them, I think we're doing not just a, a great human injustice, but we're also being very blind to the fact that could have been us. It still could be us in the future. Yeah. And none of us are protected from you know, the vicissitudes of, of life. I know you're not a psychologist, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on particularly that moment with Janice. You're in Janice's house, and we hear about Janice rifling through these rubbish bags, seemingly quite desperate to try and find if there's anything good. There might be something good left in with the bad that's sort of repeated. Yes. It's, it's a heartbreaking moment. But again, as, as you say, there's something relatable about all of us trying to hang on to things from the past, trying to hang on to some good and a fear that we've lost something or that there's something amongst the mess of our lives that holds a key to yeah. figuring things out. What did you learn about that kind of aspect of hoarding, the hanging on to things in a house in the search of some kind of value or hanging on to something important? I found that very moving because I could identify with that response very strongly. I deliberately did not read any of the psychological or psychiatric material until after I had written up each of these chapters. I wanted to be informed, but I didn't, as I'm not a psychologist, I didn't want it to kind of be the lens through which I viewed this behavior. I wanted to understand these people in real time through kind of an empathetic lens. And so when she had this literal fortress of rubbish and also keepsakes and stuff that, you know, you do need in an apartment all mixed together, and I'm watching her kind of fight to keep it all, you know, without, you know, choosing what actually was essential, I'm searching back into the things that I hang on to. And it's, I say, in a world that changes very quickly, maybe the only thing we're left with at the end of the day is our stuff. Mm. Um, you know, we can trust it. It's always there. And unlike, you know, people or things like health or money, it won't leave us. And so, you know, as she's kind of taking these photos that have been wet and no longer, you can't even make out the picture in them anymore. And, you know, jewelry that's mixed in with old rubbish bags and tea bags and Coke cans, there was something very poignant there. I think we all hold on to things that we could probably get rid of. But, you know, many of us have trouble even deleting uh, doubles of our photos on our phone. These are the things we love. These are the memories that tether us to those people and to places and time. And maybe, you know, in a world that changes so quickly, it's, it's normal to cling on to them. Mm. Obviously, it's a spectrum and, you know, we have to do it within healthy bounds. <laughs> um, but the impulse there was something that I think that many people can relate to, and I certainly could. There's also Sandra Pankhurst, of course. Her remarkable story, her very difficult childhood when she remembers living as this boy Peter. I was fascinated by the story, and I was really amazed, to be honest, that people were medically transitioning, were yes. changing gender assignment um, or having that kind of surgery in Australia in the, what, late 70s, early 80s. Yes. I really couldn't believe that, to be honest. What did researching that part of Sandra's story reveal to you about the transgender experience? 
So it was a time of deep learning for me. I tried to read everything I could and speak to everyone I could to learn not just about the physical and legal environment at the time, but also the emotional environment of the time, what it felt like to be living during these years when our society had no language to explain or to accommodate what trans people were going through. Managing to track down Sandra's surgeon, Dr. Sieber, was a huge thing for me. The fact that I could find him and that he was willing to talk and very generous with his time, also the keeper of immaculate files, taught me so much. I was surprised to learn that, yes, we did have this you know, medical capacity at the time to do these uh, surgeries, but that these doctors were as brave as their patients insofar as there was no kind of mainstream acceptance in the medical or surgical communities at this time about what they were doing. They had to operate literally in secret, in locked uh, theaters, and the patients would be sent elsewhere to recuperate. So there were very few of them doing it. They were using techniques that were being refined at the time or just a few years before. And they were making themselves of service because they saw that this was a therapeutic need for these patients, very important work, and that they knew they were the only people literally in the country who could provide that service. And that is remarkable because you're talking about a similar period where homosexuality is still considered a a mental disorder in many ways, right? So I I can only imagine the similar attitudes in the medical fraternity towards, you know, issues around gender identity. Yes, they were remarkable. And, you know, there were not just the surgeons, there were psychologists that had to give the approval before transition. And as you said, these were the times when, you know, in the DSM, homosexuality is is classified as a mental illness. There is shock treatment that is prescribed for patients that present. Um, and so, you know, I think it really speaks to the fact that, of course, there were elements of choice, but it wasn't it wasn't a choice insofar as they felt they were com- they were compelled to do this. It was um, not possible to continue living in the body to which they'd been assigned at birth. And once they had righted that, other lives opened up to them. So, um, I learned so much from that research. I was really touched by these few moments when Sandra is honest about who she is. She comes out to, to certain people in, in her life and they still love and accept her, it seems. Yes. I mean, she, she experiences horrific transphobia, homophobia, sexual violence. Yes. And that is described, touched on in the story. And that is awful. And, and no one should live with that. And people are still living with that today. Yes. But those moments like when she tells George about who she is, and he says, no, no, I I met and I fell in love with Sandra and that's okay by me. That was quite striking to me. Yes. I mean, I think that we, you know, I I can understand the impulse to not want to share all parts of her life because she'd only been punished for those, you know, instances of candor, you know, over time. But, uh, you know, that experience of, you know, getting reassurance in return from, you know, her neighbor or her friends or George... Um, you know, humans, we deserve sometimes more credit than we, we give them. Like people, when confronted with someone on a, on a person-to-person level, uh, we become far less punitive and far less, you know, willing to subscribe to misinformation and, you know, othering. We become able to see each other for who we are. And so every time I saw that in her story or the relationships, it was it was a very heartening thing to witness. I suppose we become less judgmental in a way. Yes, yes. And I'm interested in, in your thoughts on 
on judgment. It feels like a sort of hanging question towards the end of, of this story. You express sometimes your emotional frustration with Sandra, with some of the decisions that she made, yes. the way she approaches her relationships with her children. Yes. There is a frustration there that you give voice to as you're writing this book. How do you negotiate the idea of judging this subject, judging this person that you've broadly written a love letter to by yes. writing The Trauma Cleaner? But, you know, you're also talking about her story fully yes. in, in warts and all, to use a, a cliche. Yes. Well, you know, I don't think it, it does um, anyone any justice to draw them as a kind of a caricature version of themselves. That might be the opposite injustice to, you know, a purely punitive portrait. Mm. And, you know, writing about another's life is a tricky business. You're balancing on the one hand uh, all of the goodwill and good feeling towards a subject that has let you in and given you access to their life and wanting to write it as compassionately as possible. And on the other hand, as a writer of nonfiction, you have a duty to your readers to write honestly and accurately. And sometimes those two duties will be in conflict. And what do you do then? My personal view and what I tried to do in the book and what I try to do in all of my work is, you know, pan out. I think that context is uh, a very useful and necessary way of explaining, but not always excusing, but at least explaining the, a person's actions. So in terms of uh, my role of, of judging or, or discerning, you know, the truth of a particular statement or where it sits morally— if I, I can have my own opinions, but if I've given you all of the information to make your own mind up, um, and I've also explained why a person acted in a certain way or failed to act in a certain way, then judgment almost becomes irrelevant. And we're favoring instead a form of insider understanding that might go deeper um, into the human story than just judgment. Mm. And I that's so fascinating to me because I can't help but sort of put this in the context of your broader work and your background in criminology. Mm. I mean, it seems like you, you're very interested in understanding people in the, and their story fully to try and understand who they are and what they do. Mm. And I can only assume that's bringing a level of sensitivity and curiosity to the lives of people who might do some pretty horrible things and offend against the law. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my area of law is sentencing. And so that's kind of the last note in the song after a criminal offender has been found guilty. What do we do then? And the ultimate judgment. It is I the suppose. ultimate <laughs> judgment. This is the thing. And the, the research that we have, it was done in relation to juries. But we know in terms of human behavior that the more information we have, the less punitive we become. Yes. It's very easy to stigmatize people when we only know parts of the story. But when we know enough to understand their actions and to see perhaps how easy it would have been to make a bad choice mm. or to make that particular choice, we can kind of, you know, through the magic of time and space, do this empathetic imagination in which we, we become them. And it's not always possible. I mean, we have a lot of extreme cases that are reported in the news. But if we, even if we're not in, interested in understanding, even from a public safety perspective, if we want to reduce crime, we have to understand why people act in certain ways in order to prevent those things from happening in the future. So um, I'm not very interested in just judgment for its own sake. I really do have this curiosity about behavior mm. and um, how we might find points of similarity in something that at first appears very different or very strange. What would you say that you learned personally from writing The Trauma Cleaner? You know, I, I think it was this 
real living example in Sandra and her clients and my experience during those years of, of research into this human craving for order. You know, we're not going to be able to solve all of the traumas of the past, all of the, you know, injustices of the world as it is. But whether we let them determine our behavior on a day-to-day -day basis, we might have more agency perhaps over that than we think we do. And that's where this notion of order really kicked in for me. Where something sits, do we keep on putting the past in the present or do we, you know, view it retrospectively and, you know, approach our present with more of an empowered outlook? That was something I got very much through the example of Sandra and the contrast with some of her clients who had experienced similar hardships as, as she did and yet were not in the position that she is today. Mm -hmm. And also this the inevitability of um, a lack of resolution, that sometimes, you know, the the past will have differential effects on our behavior, you know, in the beautiful way in which Sandra worked with her clients, and yet the, you know, the sadness in her relationships with certain people in the present and, you know, the final chapter with the children. Sometimes it's not going to manifest neatly, and that's okay. That's the complexity of, of human experience. And so, yeah, that's something that I, I learned and that I kind of do see, I continue to see in stories that I'm working with today. You write about Sandra's unrelenting forward orientation that helped her survive through her life. And do you think that's that's the crux? I mean, that is the striking thing about her, that she, yes. she just keeps going. Yes. <laughs> and perhaps if you write the complete story of anybody's life, we'll all, we'll all be amazed at the fact that we keep going and we've done all these sort of things over our lives. But, but I mean, <laughs> Sandra's been through some intense shit, right? Yes, uh, I think exactly. that's, that's undeniable. And yet she keeps going. She's constantly looking forward and moving on, compartmentalising and, and carrying on. Yes. And, you know, that compartmentalizing is interesting to me. I mean, uh, trauma counselors will tell you that a degree of healthy compartmentalization is vital mm. um, in order to, you know, stop the past from leaking into the present. But it's a compartment to which you should, you know, have regular access. Yeah. You should have regular visits there so you kind of know when, when the lid's not so tightly sealed. Mm. But you think when Sandra came up, you know, she couldn't have seen a psychologist. They would have sent her for shock treatment or they would have put her in prison. And even if she had had the resources to, to go seek help, it was literally life-threatening for her to be honest about these issues at the time when help would have, would have been beneficial to her. So she had this DIY approach to to her, me her mental well-being. And so, you know, the self-medication and the consequent memory issues. And it, it was a difficult life in which she kind of just through her own, you know, internal insistence on moving forward, kept going. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful value in and of itself. But when we talk about resilience, it's not just forward motion. It's forward motion with emotional openness. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to kind of keep ourselves open to relationships in the present and getting hurt again. And you can understand absolutely why that wouldn't have been available to her. So there was such power in that example, but also a degree of sadness. Particularly when, if you're relentlessly moving forward, you don't hang on to friends, right? And this is something that Sandra comes to you with. Like yes. when she's thinking about herself and her life, she says, yeah, I guess I move on or I don't have old friends. I yes. can't maintain those relationships. And that's the sadness of, you know, using all that trauma to have these wonderful uh, relationships with the clients that she works with and the 
course of her daily work, and yet struggling in, in, in that personal sense. And it does make sense, but it, it, it is a sadness. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having it's me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Out of interest for our listeners who have enjoyed your work very much, what's next for Sarah Krasnessing? So I'm um, in the process of finalizing my next book, which will be submitted early next year. Similar style of immersive research, similar type of nonfiction, um, but six different stories dealing with about 10 different subjects. And each of them has a story that's um, stranger than fiction. So I'm looking forward to uh, putting that out and seeing what people reckon. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah. Cheers. Cheers. There it is. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode. Join me for the next installment of What's the Story, where we'll discuss Audible's next editor's extra. Just a reminder of how it all works. If you're an Audible member, you'll get one credit each month to use on any audiobook of your choice, and you'll also get our selected editor's extra, that free monthly audiobook that members love. If you're a newbie, head to audible.com.au slash story to get involved and to start listening. That's it for this month. Catch you next time. The Trauma Cleaner and this episode of What's the Story has covered some pretty heavy stuff and we know that can be overwhelming for some people. If you or someone you know is struggling and needs someone to talk to, remember you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hey, if you enjoyed The Trauma Cleaner and you're wondering what to listen to next, maybe you'll enjoy these other titles on Audible. Tara Westover and her family grew up preparing for the end of days, but according to the government, she didn't exist. Educated is a discovery of the transformative power of education and the price one young woman had to pay for it. Or maybe you'll enjoy See What You Made Me Do. Investigative journalist Jess Hill combines forensic research with riveting storytelling and radically rethinks how to confront the national crisis of fear and abuse in our homes. You can listen to Educated and See What You Made Me Do now on Audible.